Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. And to those of you joining us online, good morning to you as well. Um, Today is the third Sunday of Advent, and we're going to be continuing our study of the prophecies of Isaiah uh, concerning the coming of our Savior. And so we'll be looking at Isaiah 52, 7 to 10, which we read earlier in our Advent liturgy. Um, So I'm going to read it again, and if you would please follow along with me either on the screen uh, or in your Bibles. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Our passage today begins with the exclamation, how beautiful or how lovely are the feet of him who brings good news. This is a verse that stands out in our minds in a special way. And not only in our minds, but in the collective mind of the church across history. There's a reason why we read this particular passage every year at Advent. And there's a reason why Handel wrote a song for it in the Messiah. And more importantly than all of those, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul quotes it in the New Testament. Uh, We're all familiar with Romans 10. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So this is a special verse and it affects us in a powerful way. Um, Whenever we hear this verse, something happens to us. Uh, It's like we suddenly remember that we are alive, and our hearts start to beat faster, and it's like we get carried into another world. And even if we don't think about what the words are saying, just hearing the words in and of themselves is enough to cause this response in us. Well, this is the right response because that's why the Holy Spirit inspired it to be written in the way it was written. The words are beautifully descriptive and they're intended to cause us to respond emotionally, to be caught up, to be caught up in the joy of everything that's happening. But have you ever stopped to think about what makes it strike us that way? What makes this passage so beautiful? I think that, I think there's something in it um, 
that, that makes it do, do this to us, and it's the fact that there are two words that are side by side, which usually are not side by side. And those two words are feet and loveliness or beautiful. <clears throat> we usually don't think of feet as being lovely, especially some of my friends <laughs> I'm looking at. <clears throat> um, as most of you guys know, in Chinese culture, when you go into somebody's house, you take off your shoes. Um, this makes a lot of Westerners very uncomfortable and squeamish. And some of you guys, when you come into my house, you don't take off your shoes, and I get dismayed about it. Like, ah. <clears throat> well, this, this makes a lot of sense because when we take off our shoes, we are exposing a less presentable part of our bodies. Uh, it, it, it's kind of an embarrassing part of our bodies, and it, it, it's a part of our bodies that might even stink. Um, feet are the lowliest parts of our bodies. And that's what causes this verse to strike us the way it does. Uh, it's the clash. It's the clash of the lowly stinkiness of the feet and then the exaltation of them by calling them beautiful. I think this will be a little clearer if we do a little uh, word experiment. Um, if you replace in this passage the word feet with another part of the body, so for example, how beautiful are the lips that speak good news? Okay, that's, that's nice, that's acceptable. Or how beautiful are the hands that bring good news? Or how beautiful is the mind that contemplates the good news? It's not the same. But as soon as you say, how lovely are the feet? That's something else entirely. <clears throat> Why am I making such a big deal out of this? What's, what's the point? Well, the point is that this passage is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. That's a central, central part of this passage. So here's the logic. If the feet, if the lowly nothing part of our body, if the feet of the messengers are beautiful, then what about the messenger himself? And if the messenger is beautiful, how much more beautiful the message itself that he brings? And so that's the whole point of this passage. The joy of the message is so great, is so beautiful that even the feet of the messenger are lovely to us. When the prophet Isaiah wrote this passage, he was speaking about the Jews' return from captivity in Babylon. Um, and the gladness of the Jews as they heard that good news. Put yourselves in the shoes. <laughs> Sorry. 
that didn't happen in the first service, and I kind of surprised myself with that just now. Imagine that you were a Jew living in that time, and you were uprooted from your home. You were dragged out of your house, and your house was destroyed, and you were sent to live in a land over 500 miles away among a people who worshiped other gods, spoke another language, and you've lost everything that you have ever known and loved. I don't think, well, and you've been there for 70 years. Um, I don't think homesick quite begins to describe how you feel. Um, because with homesick people, you at least have the hope or you're looking forward to the time when you will return again to see your friends and family. But for these Jews who had been there for 70 years, the most they could hope for was maybe sometime before they died that they would have a dream or a vision of their forgotten homeland or that maybe in some miraculous way God would allow them to go one last time. Now imagine somebody comes to you in the middle of that despair and says, we're going home today. How do you think you would feel? I think if you were a Jew living in Isaiah's time, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself you would probably grab the messenger and kiss them. Um, If you guys have ever watched the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you remember that scene when uh, he's done seeing what life would have been like without him, and he goes back home and he puts his hand on the the handrail and that, that stupid ball comes off. And he used to hate this thing, but... This time, he picks it up and he kisses it because he's so happy to have his life back, to have another chance to live again. Well, I think that's something similar to what's going on in our passage today. Now, how does this, um, how does Isaiah 52, which was written to Jews, apply to us? The apostle Peter speaking of the believers and their love and faith in Jesus whom they have never seen and the salvation which they now have through him, speaking of us, says this in 1 Peter 1. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Isaiah 52 was written to the Jews, but really it was written to the church. It was written to us. So when it says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, we should be thinking about the people who brought the gospel to us. Take a second to think about who that may be in your life. 
for many of us, um, it was our parents. It was your mom or your dad. For others, it may have been a Sunday school teacher or a, uh, a teacher at vacation Bible school, as it was for me. I can still remember this um, middle-aged Caucasian lady who came to our Chinese church in San Francisco, and uh, she, she got, I was probably five or six or seven or something like that, and I can remember to this day that she gathered us around and, and just taught us John 3.16. And when she came to shall not perish, but have everlasting life, she opened up what it meant to perish. And all I can remember is that I was struck with it and I knew that I didn't want to perish so that I better believe in Jesus. It could have been, um, it could have been a coworker, a friend. For all of us, it's our pastors who preach the word to us the gospel to us day in and day out and who speak to us in conversations, who counsel us. All of these are the messengers of the good news to us. The fact is that if you're here today, it's because someone brought you the gospel. Don't take it for granted. Think about that person who brought the gospel to you Are their feet beautiful in your eyes? What do you think was happening in that person's head when they brought the gospel to you? Why? Why do you think they opened their mouth and spoke to you about your sin, answered your questions, listened to you, invited you into their home? Why do you think they did that? Well, it's because somebody else at one time had told them. And when they heard that news, it was such great joy to them that they refused to keep it to themselves. They were compelled by God to come and tell you. And so that's the reason why you are not outside right now in the cold, dark perishing world and it's because somebody invited you in or somebody pulled you in against your will while you were running in the opposite direction praise God praise God for the men and women of God who opened their mouth to bring us the good news let me ask you this Is the good news good news for you? We are prone to forgetting the good news and we need to be reminded of what the good news is. Um, And so the next few words in our passage do exactly that. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. When the angels came, they said, fear not. Fear not, for I bring you, well, first of all, fear not peace. Peace on earth. Um, Peace is good news. Peace is good news. It's not just a a concept, but it actually is good news. 
Let me open up, let me open that up a little bit. We all know what it's like to not be at peace with someone. How many of you have ever had a, a falling out with someone, a painful, bad falling out with someone? You just hope that when you go to Kroger, <laughs> that that person doesn't happen to be there at the same time. I have people like that. Every single time I go to Kroger on the east side, I'm ready. I have already rehearsed to myself what I'm going to say to that person if I have the misfortune of seeing them. <clears throat> I, I shouldn't say misfortune. If I have to be put in the painful, difficult situation of seeing them, um, we all have people like that. And we hope they don't see us either. Um, you know, if we see them, we already know what we're going to do. We're going to quickly avert our eyes and look at something in our cart and walk real quick to the other side of the store and hang out there for a little bit, a reasonable amount of time until we think they're probably gone. And then we'll, we'll come out and buy the rest of our groceries. This is, this is the painful reality of the life that we live. Um, and what I just described to you is only on the personal level. You look at what is happening between Republicans and Democrats across our country right now. And then you expand that to the next level and you have wars between nations, entire nations, groups, of peoples and races. Um, just look at what's happening between China and the United States right now. There is enmity and there is suspicion and mistrust and hatred. This is the world that we live in and this strife, this strife between men is a result of the fall, the result of the curse of God. And it's everywhere. It's, it's in our own families, and it goes all the way up to nations, entire nations. But this enmity is only the result of a deeper and more serious problem. The root of the hatred between men and men comes out of enmity and hatred between men and God. <clears throat> Ever since Adam sinned and fell, God is the one that we don't want to run into at the grocery store, so to speak. What do you mean, what do I mean by that? Well, it looks different depending on who you are. Um, we have in our minds the clear examples of people who have made it their life mission to oppose God and the gospel, maybe atheists or something. Um, but that sort of enmity exists very naturally amongst us. Children, little children, when your parents lead you in devotions at the dinner table, how many of you are just jumping for joy and saying, yes, it's time for family devotions? When, when dad says, all right, let's have family devotions, 
there is a very natural dread that falls on, or maybe not even a dread, but just, you know, sleepiness, drowsiness, resistance, and in the, if it's worse, maybe even bitterness and anger. I remember that as a kid, um, I can remember reading through certain parts of the Bible, and the words themselves would just make me gnash my teeth. It's just hearing them made me angry. Teenagers, how is God your enemy? Or how are you um, resistant to God? Well, the world, the world is a really attractive place. And you are at a stage in your life where you are torn between everything that your parents have ever taught you from childhood up and the fresh, exciting draw of the world. And some of you may choose to go with the world rather than to worship the God of your father. Don't do that. Don't do that. There is nothing in the world except, in the end, emptiness, pain, and grief, and destruction. But yet there is something in our hearts that tells us boy, it would be nice to, to live out in the world. First John says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Parents, adults, everybody, how are we at enmity with God? We feel this in an especially strong way after we have sinned. Just like Adam ran away from God wearing fig leaves, after we have sinned, the last thing that we want to do is to pray, is to open our Bibles. We would rather grit our teeth and get through the day and even lead our family in devotions than to personally go before God and ask for forgiveness so that we might walk with him in peace again. Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature, by nature, children of wrath. Romans 5 calls us enemies of God. We tend to think of people in three categories. We think of those that are in the church, are of the people of God, that love God, that are the children of God, here, friends of God. And then we think of the enemies of God, the revilers, the idolaters, the wicked, the, the atheists, who hate God with a passion, or the drunkard, or, or whatever, the, the clearly debauched, scornful type of man who lives in opposition to God. And then we have a third category of person that we tend to think of. We think of the average person who is neutral towards God, living in the middle, just doing their job, and and being a normal person. Scripture does not give us the option of the third category. This type of person doesn't exist in the Bible. Either we have peace with God through Christ or we are enemies of God and are living day by day under his wrath and condemnation. Now, how does that 
how does that square with our logic and thinking? We, it doesn't make sense. We really are convinced that there is a third category and we think to ourselves, you know, I don't hate God. Most of the people that I know, my relatives who aren't Christians, they wouldn't say that they hate God. How could I be his enemy? How could he be my enemy? Why would he be angry with me? Here's why. Because God created us, made us, gave us life, gave us breath, gave us food, sunshine and air and family and he's blessed us with all of these things so that we would worship him, love him, give thanks to him, serve him, obey him, and live for him. All of creation was created to give glory to God, even the trees and the way that they raise their hands and the leaves. Every, every part of creation was made by God to give God glory. And so, for a man or a woman made in the image of God, the crown of God's creation to live in indifference, to live through life without even thinking about God is an assault on him. And not only, not only are we ungrateful to him when we're neutral, but you add on top of that all the ways that we violate him through our immoralities, our lusts, our violence, our hatefulness, our impurity and our greed. And, and so we have a problem, a very big problem. As a result, God has cursed us with death and sickness. And all of us, all of us are awaiting our own death sentences and awaiting the judgment of God. I don't know if you have ever experienced the dread of death and eternity apart from God before. I'm afraid that many of us have um, numbed ourselves to this very basic God-given fear through entertainment, through distracting ourselves with house projects or whatever. But the fact is that death is very close to each one of us. And we all must face it. And it is not a, it is not an okay thing. We're not okay. We're waiting for our own sentences, which may come at any time. And then after that, eternity. This is heavy. And this is the, the weight of the curse that the entire world lives under. But then God announces peace to us. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The angel came and he said, peace, goodwill toward men. Christmas is about God taking the initiative 
taking the initiative to make peace with us while we were yet enemies. Without Christ, we live in slavery. We live in slavery to the fear of death. We live in slavery to our consciences accusing us before God. You're unworthy to be a father. You're unworthy to be a mother. You're not a Christian. We live with our consciences accusing us before God and driving us to despair. But through Christ, we have hope of eternal life. We have the assurance of eternal life and our consciences are washed clean so that we can approach God boldly with a clean conscience. Without Christ, God is our judge and our enemy, but through Christ, we are sons. We are of the household of God and we are his own. God himself has declared peace with us. What better news is there than that? Our passage today calls it good news of happiness. Um, I, I hope this person isn't listening right now, but I, I, know, I knew this guy, I still know him, but I knew this guy um, who has, who's been kind of like a, a downer type of guy. And one time I saw him after a long time and I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, I'm good. And I said, are you happy? And he says, no, but I have joy. <laughs> and I just poked at him and poked at him because it was so ridiculous. It is true, Christians can have joy in the midst of sorrow and suffering. But it is not to be the default of Christians to walk around moping and then to have a spiritual principle about having joy in the middle of suffering, right? There is such a thing as happiness and scripture often uses those two things together, happiness and joy. And so, when the angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, that means they were happy. It was happy news. Um, how many of you remember when you first heard the good news that the condemnation of God was no longer over your heads and that you no longer had to fear death and hell and that you could be assured of going to heaven after you died and being with the Lord forever. For many of us, it's a distant memory. But just for a second, bring yourself back there and remember the hope that you used to have. Remember the joy that you used to have upon hearing the good news. This news is not small news. It, it filled the shepherds with joy because those shepherds knew who they were and when God announces peace to them, it was, it was more than a sigh of relief. They were overcome with their joy. Um, remember what it says about the wise men? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so this, this has to be our response to the good news. If we don't have this joy from hearing the good news of God, then we're not going to tell anybody about it. 
This is a news that filled the shepherds with joy and caused them to tell everyone around them. And this is the same news that filled the messengers who brought us the gospel with joy and caused them to tell us. And this is the same news that should fill us with joy and compel us to tell everybody else around us. God did not intend for this news of great joy to be a private thing for those of us who grew up in the church, an exclusive club that is anti-gospel. That goes against the whole nature and character of God to keep this news to ourselves. Look at verse 10. <clears throat> the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Whenever scripture talks about the Lord's arm, it's talking about his power. And when it talks about bearing his arm, it's talking about him exerting his power, putting his power on display. And so imagine what the nations thought at the time when the Israelites were delivered from the mighty Babylonians. Well, the Lord has certainly bared his power in saving us through sending the Son in the flesh there's the genius of that, which is amazing in and of itself. And then he dies and he rises again from the dead, conquering sin and death and giving us hope of eternal life, delivering us from the devil, delivering us from our guilty consciences, delivering us from the fear of death and hell and giving us the undescribable joy of eternal life. <clears throat> For what purpose? So that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. God has meant for his, his power to be seen and felt and known to the ends of the earth. What we do here on Sunday morning, we've just sung good Christian men rejoice and you have felt the work of the Holy Spirit in giving us that joy. What we experience here is not supposed to be kept here. It's supposed to be a commonplace thing across the world. In China, in Saudi Arabia, in the farthest ends of the world, it should become a normal thing for people on Sunday morning to go to church and have what we have. And scripture does say that this will happen. Somewhere else in Isaiah it says the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Imagine people in a faraway lands saying, hey, what are you doing? I'm going to church on Sunday. Aren't you coming too? That's gonna happen one day. <clears throat> But meanwhile, we have a lot of work to do. Forget about the ends of the earth. Let's think about the end of the cul-de-sac. <laughs> we cannot let Pastor Tim do all the evangelism. Tim is getting old. And if we don't take the gospel to our friends and our neighbors 
they will perish in their sins, but they aren't gonna be the only ones that perish, we will perish too. And our church will die. And God will take the lampstand out from Trinity Reformed and will give it to somebody else who will do that work. And all the labor of the godly men and women who built this church will be lost. So don't let it happen. Don't hear me talking today and say, okay, fine, but not me. God has saved us. God has saved us, not, not just from a meaningless or purposeless life, but God has saved us from the dread of hell and has given to us instead the riches of the knowledge of him and has blessed us in unspeakable ways. And not a single one of us should be content to allow our neighbors and our friends and our family to perish. So this Christmas, resolve to do two things. Resolve, first of all, to rejoice. Resolve to rejoice. It takes work to rejoice. But let's pray that God would give us the strength to rejoice in him so that it would overflow to everybody around us. And second of all, resolve that you're gonna bring the gospel to somebody. Um, we, Chen and I were coming back from um, Michael Lakes's wedding yesterday in Michigan and after a long, long, treacherous drive home, we stopped in Indy at our favorite uh, Chinese buffet. I would, I would accept nothing else. No Burger King. We're gonna, we're gonna go to this place, right? So, so, um, so we sit down and we have servers. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, the sermon tomorrow is about bringing the gospel to people. Um. And so all the normal fights that we have with ourselves came up in my mind. Oh, that's so weird. You know, we're just customers. The last thing they want is somebody, you know. And so, um, but I I resolved to to do something. And when I tell you what that something is, you're not going to be impressed. (laughs) I went to the bathroom and there was a... um, an employee, a worker, maybe he was like 20-something Chinese guy, and he was washing his hands. <laughs> and so I went to wash my hands too, and um, I looked over at him and I said in Chinese, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and he, you know, like any normal person, he was surprised. Um, but he said, Merry Christmas to you too and I held the door open for him, and that was it. This is not really bringing the good news, but we have to start somewhere. And it's gonna be hard, it's gonna be a little awkward, it takes a little bit of courage to do it. Um, But you know what? Jesus has promised us that his sheep will hear his voice. And that maybe out of the out of the 20 people that we talk to, maybe out of the 100 that we talk to, there will be one. There will be one that hears the voice of our Lord. And because you opened your mouth, 
will be saved from perishing. Maybe because you opened your mouth, maybe somebody one day will say about you, how beautiful are the feet of Abe. I'm going to close with Romans 10 again. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Let's be beautiful feet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your messengers which you have graciously given to us. We thank you for the great joy that we have in knowing Jesus. We thank you for the freedom that we can have from the fear of hell and of death. We thank you for the hope that you give us through Christ. Would you please help us to rejoice and would you help us to be faithful messengers to bring the good news to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.